Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. I'm the lead pastor here at the Kirk, and wow, we have had an experience so far this morning already. It was just powerful worship. If I wasn't ready to preach before that, I am now. I hope so. I have a big question that I want to ask you uh, in starting this morning, a question for you to start your day with. It's It's a profound question, a very big question, and that is, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? What does he ask of me? What does God expect of me? I mean, after all, if there is a God, which most people in times, all times and places have concluded that there is a God, and Paul says we should conclude that. We should go out in nature and conclude there must be a God. So if there is a God, then we should care what God thinks and what God expects. And we should make it very personal. What does God want from me? It's an important question. And I think Paul's answer here is faith. Is faith. That's what God expects from me. That's what God wants from me is faith. In fact, the author of Hebrews wrote, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's impossible. So faith is a big deal. We're going to talk about faith today, what it is, what it means. We're going to uh, look at how it impacts our lives, maybe some places that we've missed. But so far in this letter, Paul's made the case that we're all sinners. We're all without hope apart from the grace of God. It comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. Last week, Pastor Dan talked about grace. This week, Paul picks up the theme of faith. And so I want to begin with the definition of faith. There are many ways we could define it, but I'm going to borrow from what's called the New City Catechism. Catechisms are just uh, question-and-answer formats. They're very systematic teachings of the faith. The New City Catechism is a more modern version. It takes various catechisms and puts it together in 52 questions. So there's one for each week of the year. Uh, It's a resource that just came out a few years ago from the Reformed tradition. And so their answer to the question, what is faith? Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he has offered to us in the gospel. So this is a very important starting point. Faith is much more than belief. It's no less than. It starts with belief, but simply saying, okay, I believe in God is not enough. In fact, Scripture tells us even the devil, even demons believe that God exists and they shudder. But what they don't do and what we need to do is this component of faith, which is not only acknowledging the truth about God that's revealed in Scripture, but responding to that. And what is the appropriate response? It is to surrender, to trust, to give ourselves over fully into the hands of God. This is what we mean by faith. We use this language of growing in our faith. What do we mean by that? We mean more than just learning truths from Scripture. We need that. But we have to respond. Growing in faith means giving ourselves over more fully. 
and trusting in God. This is the life of faith and the walk of faith. Now, an important question here, we're going to talk about Abraham, we're going to talk about David, people in the Old Testament. A reasonable question is that if people are saved by faith in Jesus Christ through the gospel, then how were people saved in the Old Testament? You ever wondered that? It's a good question. And Paul's answer here is that they were saved in the same way in the Old Testament as they are in the New. And I think a lot of times we default to thinking, well, okay, we're saved by grace. We live after Jesus. Good for us. Bad for them back then. They must have been saved by works, by pushing all the buttons and pulling all the levers of Judaism and keeping the law and doing the sacrificial system. No, all of that was out of obedience because they had faith. And Paul argues it here. He says, Abram believed God, faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So this is an important part of our tradition. In the Reformed tradition, we believe in this principle called the continuity of Scripture. That is, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That God works in the same way. We weren't saved by works in the Old Testament and by grace in the New. We're saved by grace from the beginning of the story to the very end. And we're saved by grace through faith, through putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That is how we're saved. Now, Paul supports this teaching by offering two examples. Very important historical figures that would have caught the attention of Paul's original audience. When he dropped names like Abraham and David, people would go, okay, we know who you're talking about here. Tell us more. We're paying attention. You have our attention. And so in chapter 4, Paul does something very important. He explains what I call a two-part transaction that happens as a result of putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That is, that our debt is forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus Christ is placed in our account. And you have to understand both sides of this, and I think we miss one side of this more than the other. So I want to give you kind of an ongoing illustration this morning. Let's think about a bank account where you place money, right? And what happens in a bank account is you have credits, you place money in your account, you, you have a job and you get a paycheck or you get money for your birthday, you put money in and you take money out right? To pay fees and to buy stuff, okay? So we have debits and credits. It's pretty simple, right? You have the red letter transactions, and then you have the black. And you hope in the end that you've put more in than you take out, because otherwise you've overdrawn and you have to pay fines, penalties, interest. Sometimes it's bad. The thing about it is we often think of our spiritual lives this way as well. We think of it like an account where there's debits and credits, And we hope at the end of the day that we've done more good things than bad. We hope we've put in more credit than we have taken out debit. And we're kind of essentially living paycheck to paycheck on our morality, hoping it works out in the end. I don't know about you, but that's not good enough for me. Because I'm not sure that my account would be, in fact, I'm very sure my account would be overdrawn. Right? Because it's not just the things I do, it's the things I say and the things I think. And that I consider, that's really bad. That's not good enough. And so many people live their lives this way. Many religions reinforce this idea and worldview that you have the good and you have the bad and you hope that you tip the scales on the good so that God will let you into heaven. It's reinforced. That's the default of the human heart, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. What if it actually was about an account 
And it was about debit and credit, but not your debits and your credits, but one massive debit that happened in your place and one massive credit that set your account right. That's what Christ has done for us. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And that's what Paul says in his own way in chapter 4 of Romans. So we're going to start with the credit transaction of faith. We start with the credit. What does Scripture say? Abram, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are credited as a gift. Not as a gift, but an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now Paul has spent three chapters painting things very badly, saying that we're all without hope, but for the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. And here he places the full weight of his argument, quoting one verse from all places, the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. He places his argument on the fact that Abraham believed the Lord and was credited to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. Now this word credited appears here 10 times. So Paul's trying to get uh, his point across. This word credited means to count as, to count as though something were there. It's credited. It's conferring a status that was not there before. It's placing something that doesn't belong to the person in the account. It is a credit. The term that theologians use is imputed righteousness, right? That's the fancy term. But really what it just means is that it's something is placed in your account. A deposit is made on your behalf. And we want to be clear here when we talk about Abram's faith that was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't his faith that saved him. If his faith saved him, if your faith saves you, then your faith just becomes a work that you do. It's not his faith, but it was the object of his faith that saved him. The fact that he placed his faith in the saving power of God and the plan of God that he could not have known all the details of, but he believed. He believed God's plan. He believed that God had the power to do that and to save him. So we're not saved by our faith, we're saved through our faith. So here's the phrase that you're going to hear me say a lot throughout this entire series. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the prepositions matter. We're not saved by our faith, we're saved by grace. It's God's work. Even faith is a gift that comes from God, is not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. He creates that faith in us. So we're saved by that grace, but it comes to us through placing our faith in Christ alone and nowhere else. Paul goes on to argue, he says our salvation, look, it's either earned wages or a free gift. Either earn it or it's a gift. It's one or the other. There's nothing in between. And we try to fuzzy the waters. It's a gift. It is a gift. It's not something that we earn. Now, as a principle of the Old Testament law that a legal matter had to be established by more than one witness. So if Abraham wasn't enough for you, folks, he says, let me quote David here. So he gives us a second witness by way of quoting Psalm 32. And it's here that we see the debit transaction. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So Paul's told us, look, 
Righteousness is credited to our account, the righteousness of Jesus through faith. We see that in the example of Abraham. Now he says, through David, we see the language of a debit, what is taken away from us. He tells us three things about the nature of sin and God's mercy. The first one is he says, my sin was forgiven. This word means to send off or to send away. God forgives, and when he forgives, he forgets. I don't know how that works. I don't know how someone who knows everything can forget, but that's the language that's used. God can do it, right? We're not that good. We can't forget, right? Forgive and forget. Well, that's the goal, but we're not that good at that. We remember things. We bring them back up at opportune times, don't we? But God can. He can forgive our sins as far as the east is from the west. Infinitely, he removes our sins and transgressions from us. So our sin is forgiven. It is covered. David uses this language here, covered. That's an interesting word. It's a reference to the day of atonement. Right on that day, the priest would take the blood of animal sacrifices and pour it on the mercy seat, right, the cover over the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of God, and the pouring of the blood over it was symbolic of covering the sins of the people. So it's, it's a different kind of image, right? Forgiveness is taking away. Here we have this image of, of covering or of covering over the blood, covering the sins of the people. And the third image, he says, is that his, his sin was not counted against him. This comes back to the accounting language of credit, right? He says the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us. Here David is saying, my sin was not counted against me. In other words, it was removed from my account. It was a kind of debit. It was taken away. The debt was taken from me. And so together we get a really powerful image. The result of these three things is blessedness. David says this is the good life. Trusting and knowing God. He knew the grace of God. David wasn't perfect. His sins were placed on public record. How many of you would like for your sins to be written in a book for millions of people to read? He understood the grace of God, and he understood that saving faith was about a transfer of trust from our own works, our own systems and relationships to trusting in Christ's work for us. I think it's important for us to understand both sides of this transaction. That there's a debit and there is a credit that happens at faith. And I don't know about you, but my experience growing up in church was I heard more about the debit. I was told often, and and for good reason, that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross wiped away my sin. Reset. Started over. Took away the debt. I talked a few weeks ago about trying to push over a skyscraper. You can't do it. There's a debt that you have of sin that cannot be repaid. It is so massive. It's like college loans. They just follow you the rest of your life. They won't go away. It's a massive debt that you cannot ever possibly repay. And there's a debit transaction. It's taken away. It's not really a debit. The counting people are like rolling their eyes at me because I'm, you know, but it's removed. That debt is removed from our account. It's taken away. I think a lot of believers understand that. I think we get that part. But then we think, okay, Jesus has done his part. He's reset my life. He's forgiven my sin. Now it's up to me, right, to do enough good things that in the end God will be happy with me. So Jesus did this work of resetting my sin, but now I've got to fill in my account with enough good stuff to make God happy. Nope. 
That's not the way it works. I think we get the debit. What I don't think we really fully grasp and don't hear enough about is the credit side of the transaction, which is it's not about you doing enough good. It's about the fact that the righteousness of Jesus, the only one who ever did it perfectly, his righteousness is placed, if you are in Christ, his righteousness is placed in your account an infinite well of resources to draw upon for the rest of your life that will never go away. You cannot add to it. It cannot be diminished from. It was perfect. Your account, all the bad stuff has gone away, and now the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks down at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That is amazing, right? This language of clothing yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only way you'll get in the wedding banquet of God is if the, the righteousness of Jesus is what is around your life. Which means you don't have to live paycheck to paycheck anymore morally. But here's my question. Why is it that we hear more about one and less about the other? At least that's been my experience. I think it's because we mistakenly think that if Christians understood the package deal on both sides of it, we couldn't motivate them to moral living. That's what I think it is. We mistakenly think that. Well, but if Jesus has done it all, then how are we going to get people to behave and be nice people? We can't motivate them. God's judgment's not hanging over them anymore. But what if that was never the best motivator to begin with? What if the best motivator for me to live into this reality of becoming like Jesus is knowing that my debt is completely forgiven, the perfect righteousness of Jesus has placed me positionally in the best place I'll ever be in my life. I cannot add to it. And knowing I am good with God. And then from there, okay, well then what motivates me to do good? Because it's what makes sense. I'm not trying to please God. I I don't do it out of duty. I do it out of delight. Out of the joy of knowing my salvation. I don't do it because I have to or else. I do it because I get to now because I've been empowered by the Spirit of God to become this new person that that God is making me to be. I'm not looking at the accounts anymore. I'm not trying to figure out where I stand. I'm not doing bad math and accounting. I'm I'm good. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So I think as we talk about this legal status, it's important to add to the conversation that there's a relational change that happens in the life of faith. It's not just our legal status and our identity, but our community changes. And this is what Paul goes on to preach in what should have been a separate sermon, but you know how it goes. Starting in verse 11, he says, So then Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. But he's also the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So this question of how are people saved back then? Was it by doing the good works, by doing the ceremonies, by getting circumcised, by following the law? Paul says, nope. You know how I know this? Because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness before he ever got circumcised. It happened, what came first was faith. It wasn't the action. And so that's true as well. If that's true for Jewish people, that can be true for Gentiles. If, if we can be saved without circumcision, why can we? Because it's faith. Faith is what forms the family. It's not the actions, it's not the ceremonies, it's not the rituals that we do. It's the faith behind them. Faith in God and trust 
and surrender. And so we, so we do these things that demonstrate our faith, but it is the faith that comes by grace that saves us. So baptism, the Lord's Supper, these are signs and seals for us. They don't save us. They point to the reality of faith. They point to the truth of the gospel. They point to the grace of God, which is what saves us. And so all people now, Paul says, okay, we can all be part of one family. In fact, Abraham is like our father. He's the father of all of us because we are united in faith. That's what forms the family of God. And you've had this experience, especially if you've traveled even regionally, but outside the United States, and you've met believers from other places, and you've realized that we have a bond. Sometimes you don't even know the language, you can't communicate, but you know there's something special there, and that's called the family of God. And it's real, and it's powerful. And that is formed by faith, the common bond that we have, that we are a people who are trusting in the living God. That makes us family, and it makes a difference. So Paul presents Abraham here as a case study in faith, giving us important lessons about faith, not because he was perfect, but because he consistently placed his faith and his trust in God. So starting in verse 20, it says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. He trusted in the promises of God. Now, I don't have time to go into Abraham's story if you're not familiar with it. But basically, God told Abraham uh, that he was going to be the father of many nations. And he's like, well, I'm a really old dude, like really old. And my wife is really old. So I don't know how that's going to work out. But he trusted God. He did some other things, radical demonstrations of faith. He believed in the promises of God which means he did not walk by sight, by what he could see, by what made sense to him, but he walked by faith. And that is what God is asking us to do as well. Us to trust in him, to trust in his plan. And that's not easy. That's not easy. That takes faith because sometimes his plan does not make sense to us. We don't like it. We don't understand it. There's things we don't see. We can have faith. Why can we trust in the promises of God? Because we can trust in the person of God. That God is a God who has revealed himself to be faithful and true time and time again. You know, we're living in crazy times. And sometimes people say, man, this is unprecedented. And I don't know. I'm, I'm not an expert in these things. But you look back and you read God's story. And God's people, we've been through a lot, haven't we? There's some pretty crazy stuff that happened in the Bible. There's, I mean, there's just crazy things that happen. But you know what? God's not done yet. We're still here. His people are still here. His gospel is still changing people. The church is not dying. God is on the move because he is a God who is faithful and his plans cannot be stopped. And finally, uh, David, or sorry, Abraham is reflecting here and saying, sorry, Paul, wow, I can't even, okay, I'm just going to go through them all. Jesus, Jesus said it. Yeah, we'll go with that. Okay, we're past Abraham, we're past David. This is Paul reflecting and saying he's fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. No, it is Abraham. Wow, good grief. It's Paul reflecting on Abraham. All right, y'all, I'm gonna be done here. I'm gonna land the plane. Abraham is not a model of faith for us because he was perfect. I'm not a model of faith because I am far from perfect. 
God wants us to believe, and he wants us to trust in him. That's what the people of God have done before us. That's what the people of God will be doing long after us if the Lord doesn't come and wrap this whole thing up before that. Faith. Not just believing in God, but trusting in him. And here's the question. Where are you on that journey of faith? It's a question we all need to ask. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here today. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you say, you know, based on the definition of faith you gave, I'm not sure if I have faith. I, I believe in God. I, I mean, it seems like there's a God, but I don't know that I have surrendered. I don't know that I have trusted in him. Maybe the step of faith for you is that beginning point. To surrender and receive the grace and mercy of God through the gospel. Maybe you've been walking with God many years and you're in Christ. Maybe the step for you is just to better understand that dynamic between the debits and the credits and quit trying to live your life pleasing God and instead serve the Lord with joy knowing that he has already fully accepted you. You could not be more righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done for you. You will live differently. You'll serve differently. You're not trying to make the account work. You're just serving out of the joy and delight in what God has done for you. Maybe there's a part of your life that you haven't fully surrendered to him. And that's the step of faith for you. You have faith in God, but you don't fully trust him in this area of your life that you've been trying to manage and trying to control, and you haven't been doing a very good job at it. And maybe it's a time and a season for you to place your faith in God in that area of your life and surrender more. What does faith give us? It gives us assurance, peace, hope. It gives us belonging and identity. Those are the things that every human being wants. It's what we all want. We want a sense of confidence, of hope for tomorrow, that this whole thing is headed somewhere, that our life matters, that we have an identity, that we belong to a community of people. And faith in Jesus Christ gives us all of those things. So by the grace of God, we're going to live into those and we're going to continue to learn about those as we unpack them throughout the letter. Would you join me as we pray together? Heavenly Father, we do love you and we trust you. But Lord, would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us in our doubt? Would you help us in those areas of our life where we do not fully trust you? We do not have not fully surrendered ourselves to you. God, would you give us the gift of faith? Not just a one-time gift, but a daily, ongoing, pouring out the gift of faith. Because that's what we're created for. We're created to know you and to trust you and to give ourselves fully into your hands, knowing that you are good and that your promises are true. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for what you have done for us through your death and through your resurrection. Lord, that that wipes away our sins and that it gives us an infinite credit of your righteousness in our place. God, help us to believe that truth and to live into that truth and may it make us into good news people. It'll all be for your glory and for our good. Amen.